0: let's see there was a question if one is feeling sad can one enter the jhanas or is it necessary to put uh, sad is it necessary to first uh, I can't read the word put an end to sadness or change the sadness to happiness the sadness doesn't have to be changed to happiness but it does need to be set aside. In other words, you don't have to completely overcome the sadness. You just not, need not to be caught in the sadness. All right, so move to a neutral space. Now, when you enter the first jhana, since it has piti and sukha, the piti is a physical glee or excitement, and the sukha is happiness, so there will be happiness. And I would say since you can't be happy and sad at the same time, that it would be necessary definitely to have the sadness set aside. It might come back, but to enter the jhana it needs to be out of the picture. So tonight what I want to do is take a close look at the four jhanas. Quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, and filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches steep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Okay, so as we mentioned last night, These quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, means setting aside the hindrances. And then one one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought. The Pali words are vitaka and vichara. They... (laughs) They often get translated as something like applied and sustained attention or initial and sustained attention. It seems that over the years, after the Buddha's death, the depth of concentration that was required in order to call it a jhana kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper, to the point where in the first jhana there was no thinking. So the words vitaka and vichara, which only ever mean thinking in the suttas, had to acquire a new meaning. So rather than fix the jhanas back to what the Buddha was up to, they simply changed the meaning of vitaka and vichara to initial and sustained attention to the meditation object. Now, it's true, you do need initial and sustained attention to the meditation object. I mean, you need that in access concentration as well as jhanas but it's not what is meant here what is meant is in the first jhana that wispy background thinking that's there at access concentration does not go away completely All right so <clears throat> it's okay if there's a bit of thought going there not so much it pulls you away and it also says that the first jhana is filled with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion or the piti and sukha, born of seclusion. As I mentioned, piti is often translated as rapture, euphoria, delight, ecstasy. But I think glee is probably the best translation, an excited release of energy. And sukha, either happiness or joy. So basically, the idea for entering the first jhana is to generate the access concentration because when you have generated the access concentration, you're now secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states of mind. So the strategy to ensure the abandoning of the hindrances is to have enough concentrated focus that nothing's happening but your access method, be it the breath or metta, or the body scan, or whatever it is. And then, using that degree of concentration, you focus on something pleasant, and just stay focused on it, and that pleasant will turn into the piti and the sukha, the rapture and the happiness. When the jhana arises, focus on the experience of piti and sukha, or more likely piti sukha, The two will be not easy to distinguish when you first start experiencing the jhanas. Over time, you can figure out what's what. Then it says, One drenches, deep saturates, and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not filled with rapture and happiness. This is a more advanced practice. The first thing to do is to get into the first jhana and then get in a second time and then figure out how you're getting in so you can get in in a an irregular way what you'll probably find is that the experience when it arises is involving the torso and the head maybe only the upper torso and the head all right so it's not the entire body don't worry about that at first just get the experience happening and sustaining. So you can maintain it for, we could say, five minutes. Although actually, if the PT is really strong, finger in the electrical socket strong, then you don't want to maintain it for five minutes. You know, 30 seconds might be plenty sufficient. If the PT is not so strong, then yeah, you can stay in this state for a more extended period, such as five minutes or so. The center of the experience seems to be more up around the head for most people, although that varies from time to time and is not really that important. After you've gotten steadied in the jhana, then you can try and drench deep saturate And suffuse your whole body with the PT and Sukha, which is done principally by just simply moving your attention from where the PT and Sukha is down into your arm, and then down into the other arm, and then back to focusing on it, and then do it again. And it will seem to spread over time. And once you've got it into the arms, then you do the same thing for the legs. But this is an advanced practice. Don't worry so much about that right now. It's more about figuring out how to get into the first genre. We have a simile. Suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap flakes into a metal basin, sprinkle them with water, and knead them into a ball so that the ball of soap flakes would be pervaded by moisture, encompassed (coughs) by moisture, Suffused with moisture inside and out and yet would not trickle. In the same way one drenches steep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body which is not suffused by this rapture and happiness. So we get a picture of what life was like at the time of the Buddha. You didn't go to Tesco and buy a bar of soap. You had your skilled bath attendant or his apprentice pour some soap flakes into a metal basin and then pour in just the right amount of water and then mix the soap flakes in the water until you had one homogeneous ball of soap. The mixing of the soap flakes is a fairly frenetic activity. There's a lot of energy in this. This really captures the feeling of the first jhana. It's not a quiet place. There's a lot of energy there. And when you are quite skilled at it, then the water completely permeates the soap flakes, just like when you're quite skilled at the first jhana, the piti and sukha seem to fill your whole body. So you generate your access concentration, focus on the pleasant sensation, stay with it until the PT and Sukha arise, and then stay with the PT and Sukha. Just that's your focus now. And maintain it for up to five minutes. Though, as I say, if it's very strong, then maybe it will be a shorter period of time. Having gotten some skill in the first jhana, You can move on to the second. Further, with the subsiding of applied and sustained thought, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which is accompanied by internal confidence and unification of mind, and is without applied and sustained thought, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches steep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration. So there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Okay, so the first thing is the subsiding of applied and sustained thought. So now the thinking goes away, and it's replaced, it says here, internal confidence and unification of mind. I think a better translation would be inner tranquility and unification of mind. The mind becomes unified around the experience of piti and sukha, but the inner tranquility points to the fact that it's not as intense an experience as the first jhana. In the first jhana, the piti, the energetic part, is predominating. In the second jhana, the sukha, the happiness, the emotional component predominates and the piti is in the background. From a practical standpoint, what you want to do is a foreground-background shift. In the first jhana, the piti is in the foreground, the sukha is in the background. <clears throat> what you can do is take a deep breath. Remember I said don't take a deep breath when you're trying to get to the first jhana? Okay, because that makes the PT go away. All right, now you're in the first jhana. Take the deep breath and the PT starts decreasing in intensity and will make it easier to pay attention to the happiness. Put your attention on the happiness. It'll stabilize and that now is your focus. It's an emotional Experience that you're focusing on, as opposed to a physical experience. The happiness, well, it's like it's your birthday, and somebody gives you a really nice present, and you open it up, and it's like, oh wow, is one of one of these is great. That it's that kind of happiness, only it's not generated by some external event. It's generated simply by your concentrated mind. So focus on this happiness. We have a simile. Oh, again, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body. Again, a more advanced practice. The move from the first jhana to the second jhana is a sense of coming down, So if the first jhana seems more in the face, the second one is more towards the heart center. The sense of dropping down from the first jhana to the second jhana is so strong and continues on to the third and the fourth that when a student tells me they went down to the next jhana, I don't know whether they meant down in number, like from three to two, or down in feeling the feeling actually overrides the sense of the number it's that much of a sense of things settling down and then when once you're skilled at focusing on the happiness then you can again as you, i said before sort of move your attention into your arms and legs and see if the happiness will seem to permeate your whole body <coughs> the simile Suppose there were a deep lake whose waters welled up from below. It would have no inlet of water from the east, west, north, or south, nor would it be refilled from time to time with showers of rain, and yet a current of cool water welling up from within the lake would drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake, so there would be no part of that entire lake which is not suffused with the cool water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration. So there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Okay, so we have a lake far up in the mountains. No spring, no streams coming in, no rain, but a spring at the bottom of the lake. And the spring water would totally permeate the lake, totally fill the lake, so that it was Saturating the entire lake. This is an incredibly accurate picture of what the second jhana feels like. This happiness is upwelling, seems to upwell from most people say the heart center. Maybe sometimes people find it a bit higher up, the throat center. But this is just upwelling of happiness. The happiness is not steady. It seems to come up in intensity a bit and then taper off and then come back up, but never really disappearing. It's pretty nice ha- amount of happiness. It sort of varies a little bit around a, a nice area. The PT is still mentioned as being present, but instead of the finger in the electrical socket intensity, making your hair stand on end, things like that, It's now a much more gentle experience. You may find yourself rocking or perhaps swaying or circling or something like that. That's the remnants of the PT that's making that happen. It's also the remnants of the PT that make the intensity level of the happiness sort of drift up and down. So what you want to do is, after you're skilled at the first jhana, find the second jhana and then be able to sustain it for 10 to 15 minutes. Get well enough skilled in it that you can maintain it for an extended period of time. And then, further, with the fading away of rapture, one dwells in equanimity, mindfulness, and clearly comprehending and experiences happiness with the body. Thus one enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. One drenches steep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with this happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. So the third jhana is basically a calming of things even further. The PT goes away completely. There's equanimity, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. Not really things to look for in a practical sense, although once you get stabilized in the jhana, you'll notice that that's there. And it says, One dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. So how would you characterize happy equanimity? Well, the best word would be contentment. The third jhana is a state of contentment, a state of wishlessness, a state of complete satisfaction, satisfaction so total that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. Right? You don't want anything. You're just happy to be there. Very contented feeling. And the PT is gone. As a practical matter, what you can do, once again, take a deeper than ordinary breath, and as you let the air out, let the intensity level of the happiness begin decreasing. <clears throat> it may be helpful... As the intensity level of the happiness decreases, to remember a time when you were very contented. You've just eaten the perfect meal. You hadn't overeaten, and you didn't have to wash the dishes, right? You're content. You're satisfied. So the idea is start the intensity level of the happiness dropping, brief memory of the contented situation and pluck the feeling of contentment out of that memory and let that decreasing happiness become that contented feeling and just stay focused on the contentment. If the PT hasn't gone away, you haven't made it to the third jhana. You've just got to a quieter state of the second jhana. But most people find that as they let the happiness decrease and it becomes contentment, that the PT on its own has disappeared. It's again a sense of sinking down. If you find the second jhana centered around the heart center, then the third jhana drops more to the belly. But this is somewhat idiosyncratic. The lowering of them is pretty constant, but exactly where they're located varies from person to person. We have a simile. Suppose in a lotus pond there were blue, white, or red lotuses that have been born in the water, grow in the water, and never rise up above the water, but flourish immersed in the water. From their tips to their roots, they would be drenched deep, saturated, and suffused with the water, so there would be no part of those lotuses not suffused with water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. So we have a lotus pond. And there are lotuses coming up out of the mud, but not above the surface of the water. They're leading their whole lives underwater, filled with water. This is a very still picture. The lotuses aren't up waving in the breeze. They're underwater and very still. There's definitely a sense of stillness in the third jhana. As I mentioned in the second, the remnants of the piti may give you a sense of rocking or swaying or something like that, that's gone by the time you get to the third jhana. And physically, it's a very still place. And your attention is focused on the emotional sense of contentment. So the idea is that you find this contented state and you stay focused on that for, again, some time. 10 to 15 minutes would be good. Uh, Getting it into the various parts of the body, once again, is a a more advanced practice. But when you feel stable with the contentment, you can sort of move your attention down into your arms and see if the contented feeling seems to spread and then do the same thing for your legs. So, after hanging out there for some time, then... Further, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain... And with the previous passing away of joy and grief, one enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither pleasant nor painful and contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Okay, so with the abandoning of pleasure and pain as with the previous passing away of joy and grief. This is pointing to the fact that the fourth jhana is an emotionally neutral state. doesn't mean that there was grief or pain in any of the jhanas. But there certainly was joy in the first two and there's pleasure in the first three. And so what's necessary is to let the mind let go of the pleasure of the contentment. I mean, contentment is a pleasurable state to be in. So let go of that pleasure. Let the contentment become a neutral state. And let the mind once again drop down. The entry into the fourth jhana requires more letting go Than any of the previous jhanas. It's a bit more of a difficult transition. You need to be well concentrated in the third jhana. What I can say that may be helpful is that you're in the third jhana, you're focused on the contentment, then look at the fact that the contentment is pleasurable and let go of that pleasure. Just let it fade out. I find that in the first jhana, I have a big grin on my face. You can see my teeth. In the second jhana, it's a big smile. Maybe you don't see the teeth. In the third jhana, it's a wispy smile, like the Buddha. And I can just simply relax all the muscles of my face. And when I do, there's a sense of things sort of starting to drift down. Go with the sense of drifting down. Just put your attention on the drifting down and let things drift down, down, down. Down to a place of quiet stillness. Let the mind just drift down and come to rest. It's an equanimous place, but you really can't focus very well on equanimity. But what you can focus on is the quiet stillness. A simile that Ayakema used for the transition from the third jhana to the fourth jhana. In the third jhana, you're sitting in the mouth of a well. You're a bit isolated from the world around you. In order to move to the fourth jhana, let go and fall down the well. The falling down the well is, is more like drifting down as opposed to a free fall. It's more like sinking to the bottom of a swimming pool than a you know, drop in, in a free fall. You could also picture yourself in the third jhana just below the surface of some water and then the fourth jhana sinking to the bottom of the lake. Or in the third jhana you're in the mouth of a cave And then for the fourth jhana, you go deep down inside the mountain. So a real secluded sense here. It says, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. And then we have a simile Suppose a man were to be sitting covered from the head down by a white cloth so there would be no part of his entire body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure bright mind so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure bright mind. When I first started practicing the jhanas, I didn't really get what this was talking about. I found that in the fourth jhana, visually, it was dark. Yeah, my mind was pure, but bright? No, it was dark. Uh, I didn't really understand what was going on. And the simile of the man covered with the white cloth? Okay, so he's got a sheet over his head. He's a bit isolated from the world around him. Okay, I could buy that. But I have to admit, I didn't really get it. Then in 2006, I sat a retreat with a Venerable Pau Ak, who's a jhana master from Burma. And he teaches the jhanas as they're described in the Vasuddhimagga very, very deep states of concentration, much deeper than anyone on a 10 day retreat will experience. I mean, we're talking serious concentration. Fairly shortly after the retreat began, he put me to work doing very long sittings. I was sitting in a chair, so it wasn't that much of a problem, and I would be doing sittings of three to four hours, three to four hours of following the breath, three to four hours in what I would call access concentration. Uh, By his definition, it wasn't yet access concentration. (laughs) But what I've described to you is access concentration, that's where I was, and just sitting there following the breath. After a few days, I'm sitting there, and I get this huge burst of PT. I mean, serious PT. I felt my head was going to pop off. It was quite violent shaking, actually. Lasted, you know, 20 seconds or so. Luckily, it settled down. And so, the next time I had an interview with the Venerable Paolak, I described what happened. I didn't use the word PT, uh, and he said to me, "That is gross PT. Do not let that happen." Okay, <laughs> all right. I mean, I'm sort of used to sitting there in access concentration and having PT happen. So, so what I discovered was I had to not smile. I had to keep a pretty neutral expression on my face and if I did then the gross PT wouldn't show up and I could sit there just following my breath for hours uh, basically what he wants you to do is experience a nimitta, a circle of light and if you can get the preliminary nimitta and stabilize that for an hour then you might get the intermediate nimitta And if you can stabilize that for an hour, then you might get the real nimitta. That's access concentration. Stabilize that for an hour, and you might be able to get into the first jhana. Serious concentration. I never got that far. I got the preliminary nimitta for maybe 20 minutes or something. But I'm doing all this long sitting in access concentration. Sometimes at the end of the day, though, I'd smile, you know, and the PT would come, and it would be enormous, right? And what followed was an immediate move to the second jhana. As soon as the PT calmed down, after 20, 30 seconds, I'd find myself just enormously happy with a big break-your-face grin on my face, just in very, very deep second jhana. My mind wasn't going anywhere. There was no way I was going to lose this experience. I mean, I was really absorbed into it. The unification of mind that's mentioned here was so strong that my mind was just settled into it. Great. So I hung out there for about 10 minutes and thought I'll move to the third jhana. But I couldn't because what was happening, I'm sitting there being happy, and every few minutes the PT would come back and it would be really strong. It was luckily beginning to decrease in intensity, so that after 10 minutes it was not as strong as that first time. But the move to contentment one, I had trouble turning down the happiness to contentment. I just, it just really wanted to be happy. And get it turned down a little bit, and here comes the PT again. It was like I, I couldn't leave the second jhana. Well, that was okay. I was happy with the experience. So I'm hanging out there, just being very happy. And then after about 20 minutes, then the happiness just on its own faded away into contentment. And there was no more PT, and I'm just hanging out in this very contented state. Third jhana so I would stay there for a while first time it happened I tried to move on to the fourth jhana couldn't get the contentment to go away you know I'd let it go and he'd come right back but after about five or ten minutes it on its own just faded out and I found myself going into a very neutral space and it descended down to a place of quiet stillness But instead of being black, like I was used to experiencing the fourth jhana, it was bright white. My eyes were closed, but what I was seeing was a bright white. It was as though I was sitting out in an open field on a sunny day with a sheet over my head and my eyes open, just like the simile. Only my eyes were closed and I was seeing this brightness. So the pure, bright mind was there. This, of course, leads to the inevitable conclusion that the depth of jhana that the Buddha and his monks were practicing was deeper than I had been practicing prior to that. This kind of makes sense. When you read in the suttas about the monks going for the days abiding... They would eat their midday meal, which probably was around 10, 11 o'clock. And then they would go and meditate until it got dark, around 6 p.m. And you don't get the feeling they were doing 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking. They would go and meditate for seven or eight hours, one sitting. Uh, They were probably getting a lot more concentrated than I was. And so what was showing up was the pure, bright mind. So my guess is that the level of concentration that we're able to generate on a 10-day st- retreat is somewhat less than what the Buddha and his monks was generating. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I do find that the level that we are able to generate as laypeople on a retreat of this length is quite beneficial for insight practice what comes next is when one's mind is thus concentrated pure and bright unblemished free from defects malleable wieldy steady and attained to imperturbability one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing one understands thus this is my body having material form composed of the four primary elements, originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, supported by it and bound up with it. The purpose of the jhanas is to generate a mind that's concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, And attain to imperturbability, which you can direct and incline to knowing and seeing. Knowing and seeing is basically to insight practice. Insight into the nature of reality. Particularly insight into this body and this mind. Now, the four foundations of mindfulness... I mentioned what they were this morning. One part body and three parts mind. The jhanas are a warm-up exercise for insight practice. The idea is that you spend some time concentrating your mind to the best of your ability, and then when your mind is concentrated, you let go of the concentrating practice, the jhanas, and take your concentrated mind and begin investigating reality. The jhanas are such a one-pointed focus that your normal ego functioning is temporarily suppressed. Everyone is aware that you have to think up your ego or emote up your ego. It's not a thing It's a construct, and you have to construct it. You do this on a regular basis. You're quite skilled at it. If you pay attention, you can sometimes watch yourself do it. You know, like this morning when I said the sign-up sheet for the next round of interviews is available... I mean, you're sitting there, you're just coming out of your meditation, you're very quiet, and then it's suddenly, I've got to get my good spot, and then you go rushing out there, right? You just generated a sense of self, a sense of ego. We do this all the time. But you can't do that and be in the jhanas. They require such a focus that basically you're telling your ego, go sit in the corner, shut up, we'll get back to you later, right? And so when you come out, and begin investigating reality, you're investigating it from a much less egocentric perspective. Investigating from a much less egocentric perspective gives you a much better chance of seeing what's really happening. Normally, when we look at the world, we're looking at it in terms of, can I eat that or will that eat me? Well, okay, actually we get a little more sophisticated, but basically that's it. Is this something I want to get hold of and keep? Is this something I need to push away because it's something I don't want around? Right? It's all about me, me getting this, me pushing this away. And despite the fact that it does appear that the world revolves around me, taint not so. And so if you can look at the world from a perspective that is less egocentric, you have a much better chance of seeing what's going on. If you can look at the world with a mind that is indistractable, that's pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, then you have a much better chance of seeing what's there the attain to imperturbability is quite helpful because some of what there is not exactly what you wanted to see. I mean, after all, there's a lot of dukkha around and we do have a tendency to sort of ignore the dukkha or hide from the dukkha. But actually seeing it, seeing the impermanent nature of things and the fact that they don't bring you lasting happiness is a useful thing to see, so you don't go grasping after things, expecting lasting happiness when it's not possible. But it's a kind of a disturbing thing, but having this imperturbability, this mind that is not so easily disturbed, allows you to see these things in a much clearer way. Getting enlightened is a very difficult task probably easier to get a dull butter knife and cut this table in two. I mean, you could do it, right? You get your knife and you you can make a dent right away. But to get all the way through it, that's a lot of hard work. It would go a lot easier if you got a whetstone and you started sharpening up that knife, right? Put an edge on it. Yeah, you can cut a lot faster. In fact, you would make up all the time you wasted sharpening the knife, right? But, of course, the knife would get dull, and you'd have to go back and sharpen it again. And then you could cut some more. And you could, yeah, you could get through even with a uh, a butter knife if you sharpen it up. This is what the jhanas are about, a method for sharpening your mind. In the Tibetan tradition, the bodhisattva of wisdom is Manjushri, and he's often depicted with a sword in his hand that he uses to cut through the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is sharpening Manjushri's sword. All right? doesn't cut any bonds of ignorance. you still got to go out and wield the sword. And if you make the mistake of doing nothing but jhana practice nothing but sharpening the sword. Eventually, you wind up with no sword, right? So it's sharpen it and then wield it. In other words, in the first part of a sitting, you would concentrate your mind, and then having gotten it concentrated, you incline and direct it to knowing and seeing reality. So this is the first four jhanas. Any questions or comments? Um, why would you want to go from the third to the fourth jhana? It doesn't sound particularly appealing. <laughs> <laughs> why would you go from the third jhana to the fourth jhana? <laughs> it turns out actually that the state of equanimity is a really great place to hang out. The the pleasure of the contentment is a, just a little bit agitating in comparison to the quiet stillness of the fourth jhana furthermore the depth of concentration that the fourth jhana brings is significantly more than what the third jhana brings so between those two yeah it 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 does make sense once you get skilled at it but yeah why would you want to leave a contented state for a state that doesn't have anything going on? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But with some practice, it becomes oh, yeah, right, this makes sense. Right. Can you take your jhana practice home with you from this retreat? Depends on two things. One is how well do you know how to get into these states? I mean, if you stumbled in only a couple of times, yeah, probably not. But if you've gotten in several times and been able to ascertain what you're doing to get in, know them fairly well, and then you go home and you have a good daily practice, then yeah, you can take them home for some period of time. If your daily practice is an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, seven days a week, you probably can keep them more or less indefinitely. If it's any less than that, over time they'll fade out. If it's, say, an hour in the morning, six days a week, maybe you can keep the jhanas for a few months, maybe a bit longer. If it's 45 minutes, three or four times a week, hmm not going to stick around very long. It's a serious commitment to keep this going. The good news is that if you have learned them on this retreat and really know them and are able to take them home for a while, even after they fade out, if you then do another retreat, perhaps even just a day-long retreat, they'll come back. Or certainly if you go on a week-long retreat or a 10-day retreat, they can come back and you can start using them again. It's It's a difficult practice. It's not easy. But with the commitment of a regular sitting practice, it's possible to keep them around for quite some time. And if you're doing multiple retreats a year, then you can yeah keep them around sort of indefinitely. What sort of experiences has being in the jhanas had? On, what sort of impact has it had on my life? Kind of hard to tell because I didn't have a clone that didn't do the jhanas. So, you know, my life has unfolded quite nicely since then. Uh, I feel I have a deeper understanding of what the Buddha was pointing at. I've gained some insight into the nature of reality. I notice that when things go wrong, I'm much less likely to get freaked out. I'm not saying I never get freaked out, but it, you know, it seems that I can handle adver- adversity a bit better. Now, whether this is from the jhanas or from the insights I've gained, I would guess it's more from the insights. Uh, the insights I've gotten have been no actually quite amazing when i first learned the jhanas well as i said i'm a greed type i just wanted to play with these cool mind states but i go into an interview with ayaka and she says you've got to start doing insight practice in the same sittings and i said yeah but it takes me a long time to get through them she says do them faster <laughs> Well, Ayakema was the type of person that you would say, yes, ma'am, I'll go try that out right away. (laughs) So I went and tried it out, and I was truly astonished at the amount of insight I gained just in a few days. I had been practicing for six years. What I would say is in those six years of practice, the amount of insight I had gained was like, You get in a car and you figure out if you push this lever up, it blinks over there, and you push it down, it blinks over here. I figured out the turn signal indicator. By the end of that month-long retreat of practicing the jhanas and then doing insight afterwards, I had backed the car out of the parking lot and driven it around the block. I mean, it was that much of a more profound understanding of what the Buddha was pointing at. I actually came back from that retreat... Enough different that my friends commented on it, that it had made that profound a change. And it seems to continue to do so. I mean, what can I say? I I get people inviting me to come across the pond and teach a retreat here. I get to hang out with a whole bunch of interesting people. It's a pretty nice life that's evolved. How much of it is from the jhanas, how much of it is from inside, I can't really tease apart. But I definitely am very appreciative of the life that has evolved since I've learned these. It sort of takes care of itself. So the question is, do you have to keep pumping the concentration level up? The objects that you're focusing on are getting more and more subtle as you move through the jhanas. So when you come into the first jhana, there's nothing subtle about the piti, right? It's a pretty obvious thing, and you don't really need the concentration up to stay with that. When you move to the second the happiness is a more subtle object. It's probably more subtle than the breath. You may find that you're sort of wobbling a bit. You, you start to slip off into some thinking and you come back and you start slipping off again. So sometimes I find myself going, no, just be happy. You know, just really trying to redouble my efforts. And then it'll settle in and there's uh, a deeper sense of happiness there. And the same thing may happen in the others, that it starts to wobble because my concentration is not that strong. So you may find that you have to. There have been other times when, yeah, it's just there, no problem, move to the next one, still solid, move to the next one, still there. So it really depends on the depth of concentration you've got once you start in. No, no, it's redouble your efforts on the primary factor of the jhana. So redouble your efforts on the happiness, the contentment, the quiet stillness for the jhanas two, three, and four. Right. Now sometimes I'll be there in a jhana and I'll just fall out. You know, get into the first jhana, get into the second jhana. Quite happy, it's going really well. Next thing I know, where to? No, no, Jana left. I'm in the middle of some conversation with myself. It's like, uh-oh. And then I might go back to the breath and work the access concentration up again, and then come back in one, two, and it'll be better. Yes, Uh, does your insight support your jhana practice as well as your jhana practice supporting your insight? Yes, very definitely. As you're gaining the insights, it can be quite inspiring. And so, yeah, you're ready to come back and do the work again. As you come out and begin investigating, one of the things to investigate is how did you get there? And so now with your mind that clear, you can reflect back and see, okay, this is what I was doing to get there, and have a deeper understanding of what causes the jhanas to arise so the next time you practice them, you're not wasting your energy in directions that aren't so helpful. So, yeah. How long do I? Sp- yeah. How long do I spend in each jhana as I'm moving through them? It, it varies. Uh, some. I don't usually spend much time in one. I mean, I've been cranking the PT now for twenty-two years. I know where the knobs are. I can crank it up pretty strong, and just so I'm in there twenty seconds or so, and move on into two. Sometimes I'll stay in the second jhana for an extended period, five, ten minutes, and then move on into three, and I'm there for three or four minutes, and then move on into four, and I'm there for a longer time. Then maybe the next time, I move into two for a shorter time, you know, three or four minutes, and then I'll maybe spend ten minutes in number three, and a medium time in number four or maybe medium in two and short in three and a long time in four. So it varies, and I'll just work with it, you know, so that over a period of, say, a week of entering the jhanas repeatedly, some jhanas get a long time on certain days and some don't. But I don't really sort of plan it out in advance. It's just sort of like, oh, yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time in three, so I'll, I'll hang out here longer this time that sort of thing. Five to ten minutes, besides the first five to ten minutes for the others. Yeah, something like that, five to ten minutes. Uh, what you really want to do is spend about half of your meditation period getting concentrated, and then about half of that period doing an insight practice. So if you've got four jhanas and you've got an hour, all right, and let's say it takes you ten minutes to get to access concentration... Right, so that leaves you 20 minutes for the jhana, so that's about five minutes apiece. Right? So some of them are a little longer, some of them are a little shorter. Since the first jhana is quite short for me, that really gives me about 19 and a half minutes. So now I could do six and a half minutes apiece. But it tends to be more like three or four minutes or ten minutes, something like that. But if I'm doing all eight jhanas, then I've got to move a little faster. I wouldn't say you need to go to the fourth jhana. There is a sutta where the Buddha says it's possible to come out of the first jhana and gain enough insight to become totally enlightened. So I wouldn't say you have to go to the fourth. If you know the fourth, it's going to be the most helpful one. The depth of concentration significantly increases between three and four. But if you only know the first three, then you do the first three. If you only know the first one, you just do the first one. How do you go from there into doing insight? How do you go from a jhana to insight? You just start doing the insight practice. So if, if for example, you're in the fourth jhana and your insight practice is going to be the five daily recollections, so you're there, quiet stillness, your mind not moving, okay time for insight practice and you say to yourself i am of the nature to grow old i've not gotten beyond aging you just start doing it you don't have to like okay make the jhana go away or anything like that you just start doing the practice the sense of quiet stillness will remain for a bit but it'll begin to break up as you continue doing the practice Is the experience always the same? I would say it's always pretty similar. Uh, sometimes your concentration is quite a bit stronger, and therefore it feels, it's, it's quite recognizable as, yeah, this is where I am, I'm, I'm in the second jhana. But it may seem a bit deeper, or it may be kind of flaky because your concentration isn't so good. But pretty much the flavor is, is the same. Are any of these states scary? No. Not even the fourth. fourth. It may, when you first get there, seem a little scary because you're in a very different place. But the fear is more the fear of the unknown, the fear of being in a strange place, the fear of your mind now being someplace it's never been before. But everyone finds when they get used to being in a jhana, there's not really anything there to be frightened of. It's actually quite pleasant. It's quite, I wouldn't say it's pleasant to be in a place where there's no pleasure, no pain. That doesn't make any sense. But you're quite appreciative of being in a state of such equanimity. But, yeah, the first jhana coming on and this PT suddenly taking over your body and you're going out of control, that can be frightening. Or you're feeling like you're dropping down and where you're dropping into and you're not really you know, cognizant of how the whole experience unfolds for number four. Maybe you get a little worried about that. But I would say in general, once you get used to them, there is nothing to be the, even the slightest bit worrisome. Or the jhanas so addictive you forget to do the insight practice. There can be a tendency to do that. I mean, that was what was happening with me when Aya came and told me, you've got to do insight practice. The good news is that we are Westerners. We have our famous short attention span. So after a while, you get the sense of, okay, come on, there's got to be more to it than this. Well, hopefully you have a teacher around that tells you, yeah, do insight practice. Once you start doing the insight practice, the quantity and quality of the insights is so much more interesting than the jhanic states themselves that it pretty much takes care of itself. The only people I know that have been jhana junkies for any significant period of time didn't have a teacher around. I mean, I was a jhana junkie for 18 months. I didn't know what to do. You know, it was like, okay, come on, let's get some PT. Ah, yeah, good, all right, come on. It's got to be more than this. I mean, eventually I got to the point of, come on, there's something else happening. I know this is supposed to be. I've talked to a few other people that found their way into the jhanas, didn't know what it was, and wound up, yeah, getting stuck there, didn't know what to do with it. But none of them had a teacher around. So one of my jobs is to look out for Johnny junkiness in any of you. You mentioned the story about getting into deeper states with Kauk and and that. Mm-hmm. Oh, very definitely. I wasn't even close to what Powak was describing. Not even close. Yeah, I mean, maintaining a circle of light for an hour? No. I mean, my best shot was 20 minutes, and it was a purple circle, not a white circle. (laughs) So, yeah. It's a significantly deeper state. It's a state so deep that you are oblivious to the world outside of you. You, you don't hear sounds. You don't feel your body. Which, of course, kind of contradicts that you're supposed to drink, deep, saturate, and suffuse your body. I mean, how are you going to do that if you can't even find your body? So clearly, the, the Sutta level is a much, much deeper level than what is described here in the Suttas. I can't say from personal experience since I haven't gotten to that level ever. <clears throat> it could well be. The question arises do you have the time to invest to get to that level? From talking with Westerners that have studied with Venerable Powalk, I would say you need to plan on a six month retreat, and maybe even better, a year right to have a chance to learn them and then do your practice afterwards uh if that doesn't fit your lifestyle then maybe you should gain whatever benefit you can from whatever level of concentration you can muster so that's what i'm attempting to teach here i came up basically was teaching the jhanas at the level that people practicing meditation would stumble into, and at a level that could be learned in a 10 day course, and at a level that would benefit people, even if that's all they had was 10 days to learn them and take them home. She was quite practical, you know. Whereas you will find some teachers that say, that's not enough concentration, it's not the real jhanas. So, what are you supposed to do? Right? Ignore it when it could be beneficial. Yeah, I mean, the Buddha was eminently practical. I think it's probably run with what you got, use it to the best of your ability.